I think the, the biggest one is actually it's based on the hero's journey. So I want people to have fun. I don't always wake up with a smile on my face, but I hope most days that I wake up with a smile on my face. You know, and after I've had my first coffee, there's definitely a, a drug-infused smile on my face. But it's this piece about the hero's journey is about growth stretching. It is about having fun and stretching yourselves in a way that sometimes fun for some people is really just pushing themselves, finding new ways they didn't realize they could do things. Welcome to Create New Futures, a show about thought-provoking ideas and practices you can use to create and shape your future in life and in business. Join Aviv Shahar, author and innovation strategy consultant, as he shares his proven strategies that have helped clients create breakthrough results. Aviv has guided executives at Fortune 100 companies, and now he wants to help you. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders and entrepreneurs to explore how you can create new futures for you and for your organization. This is a V event. Today, I'm speaking with Colin Hunter. Colin is the Chief Executive Officer of Potential Squared, an international firm that specializes in creating playgrounds to disrupt the way people collaborate and lead. They teach organizations how to build a workplace culture that is less like a classroom and more like a playground, a place filled with opportunities to take risks and test boundaries. Colin is the author of Be More Wrong, How Failure Makes You an Outstanding Leader, which uncovers the habits and practices of the hero's journey together with design thinking and the blended skills of coaching and mentoring. Colin, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Aviv, thank you for having me. What a great introduction. Couldn't have said it better myself. Maybe we should end there. It can only go downhill from now. (laughs) Well, I I was about to ask, what would you like to add to the introduction? Oh, well, I'd like to add a whole list of things, but I mean, I suppose that the key thing is that I, I see myself as an author, mentor, and coach, and that's a, a lifelong journey that I'm on to, uh, to grow myself. So I'm a work in progress, and hopefully that's what I bring to my clients as well. Yeah. Well, that's a beautiful phrase. It's a phrase I use every day with my clients, the, the idea of work in progress. When, so let's first pause there and what that means for you and whether we mean the same Thing describe how you mean that term that you're a work in progress. So I suppose two sides. If I go back to where I grew up, I grew up with the imposter syndrome really written all the way through me. I had a grandfather who was a professor of theology and a great man and you know, was an inspiration to so many people. And I had a father who was a doctor who invented and worked on echocardiography, which was you know the first time that he's actually allowed babies' hearts to be diagnosed through imaging. And therefore, he saved you know thousands of babies' lives and transformed the lives of children. And then I came along and I was like, so what am I going to do that's in there that compares to these two great men? And so I've been working and I tried to follow them. I tried to do what I thought was right in their eyes. And I suddenly had a realization that's probably at about 30 years old, that that wasn't what I should be doing. I should be trying to find my true voice and my true direction. So I spent the rest of my life almost undoing some of the things that are in my head and 
putting some new voices and some new work in there. So I've taken on, as Simon Sinek would say, an infinite mindset around that and said, as long as I live my life in a purposeful way towards creating playgrounds for other people, then I, I will live it in the right way and I can live and grow in the respect of my grandfather and my father in terms of what they thought about me. So that's my work in progress. Yeah. So helping others grow and evolve and in the process, ultimately helping yourself grow and evolve. Yeah. I mean, you know, I have a big passion for the growth of individuals and others and, you know, pay it forward is a principle I hold in my life. And I get a real thrill and uh, a real, I have a real passion for seeing other people evolve and develop. And so therefore, there's a degree of me speaking, even on a podcast, I come across as confident, but inside, I'd rather be listening to other people's stories. I'd rather be where you are today and interviewing rather than talking, but I've learned to do the other thing because I need to get my messages across and find a way of helping the unlikely leader, as I would call them, to find themselves. Yeah. Indeed. Well, so to build on the meaning you create mm. around the idea of work in progress, the significance of this idea for me, and I think you will likely enjoy and embrace this concept, is the idea that once I tell myself and everybody else that I'm a work in progress and I've been, every time I teach the practices that we bring in the Create New Futures to senior leadership teams, I say that as I model the behavior, I say to them, I'm a work in progress. Mm. And so I'm not expecting you today to produce a perfect outcome. I'm expecting you today to embrace the practice and to create the first draft. And then I continue to build on that and to offer that when you embrace this idea that every day we can get up in the morning and produce new drafts, what you ultimately do, you instruct yourself consciously and also you instruct your unconscious mind mm -hmm. that you never need to be perfect. That the business of living is getting up in the morning to produce new drafts. You can today discover a new compassionate self, a new more patient self, a new better leader, better coach, better facilitator, better parent, better partner, better everything, mm. because you're actually not contained in the draft you created yesterday, the week before, the month before. You can produce your new draft today. That's the meaning of being mm. a work in progress for me. I love that. It's something I wasn't good at as, as a child, and I've I've started embracing things like meditation, but also just journaling. And I've got in front of me here my mind map. So I do a fresh mind map for every conversation. And it's amazing when you fall out your own thinking in a day, how new ideas, fresh ideas come. But the ability to fall out your, the script you had yesterday and find a new one today, I love that idea. I think it's a great one to, to hold on to. Yeah. So you're leading your own team. You're creating mm. your own intellectual property, you engage with clients. Of all the things you do, what do you enjoy most and why? Mm. So the one that gets me up to mischief is something called squirreling. So I, I love, I've got a, a good colleague uh, who is part of an association I'm with, and Elaine B. And she does a lot of work in the learning and development community. And she talks about this. She tries to bring together other people's thoughts, other people's ideas, and find a different way, a new way of looking at things in there. And I was sat at the conference I met her at when Josh Burson, who speaks on HR, spoke and he said that our profession, learning and development, needs a makeover. HR needs a makeover. And I thought that day, I thought, well, look, here, we've got a chance to collaborate with each other in this room, even though we're competitors, 
and find a new way to go forward. So the bit that I'm really passionate about is partnering with the likes of partners we've got, our clients, and creating that space where we can find new ways of doing things. So I was chatting to one of my key clients tonight, and we're thinking about 2022 already. And one of the biggest things that's coming out of it, as we know, is, is resilience in the world at the moment. And actually, the old leadership list of coaching, mentoring is still there. But actually, the biggest, probably number one at the moment, is resilience and how people can become anti-fragile as leaders in the, the current environment. And so therefore, we're planning for 22. How do we get the new thinking? How do we blend neuroscience and other pieces in there to get a new way of looking at that? And that's what I'm passionate about, exploring that. Yeah. So squirreling is that idea of bringing different pieces of information, different inputs and weaving them together. That's what you call squirreling? Squirreling, yeah. It, it actually comes from a movie where up, where there's an old man and a dog, and the dog is consistently just looking as if it's looking at it, its owner, but he sees a squirrel and he's off and he's straight away. So some people call it bright, shiny, new object syndrome, whatever you want to call it. Squirreling for me is going off and finding things, but I've been learning to get a better at quickly rejecting the things that don't work, bringing in the newer things. So I have a mantra in my mind about 80% of things not being right, 20% being right, but being rigorous about bringing the right things in, testing them. So a bit like you're saying, your new script, testing it out, working it. I do that on a consistent basis. Now, that's great for me, but it drives my team up the wall because I'm bringing new ideas in all the time. They're saying, we just got to this one. Can we not just hold this for a while? So... I love it. My team would want to put me in a darkened room and lock the door, really, if they could get the chance. So, yeah. Nice. So let's focus on Be More Wrong. Why, mm. first, why that title for a book, Be More Wrong, how failure makes you an outstanding leader? Mm. I mean, it comes from a couple of things. One is that I've screwed up so many times in my career and my life and, you know, therefore work in progress. I mean, I had prototypes and I've had scripts rewritten and rewritten, but I was realizing that actually, as I look back on it, and this is the degree of where wisdom comes when you're older, I was starting to realize that some of my major screw-ups were my biggest learning points. So I had a breakdown when I was 30. And that was a, a major wake up for me about my systems and my habits that I didn't have infinite amounts of energy to provide that I needed to take care of myself. Um, and so therefore, this concept about thinking about how do I use that to flip it around to help others? And therefore, I'll be more wrongs or our wrongs in our life stretch us, but it's only with stretch and rest that we grow. And therefore, the be more wrong philosophy is, is less about just fail and fail. It's about how can I fail, reflect, rest, learn, grow in a controlled way and allowing people to stretch themselves to do that. So that's the first principle. And then the second principle, which I've always been passionate about, and it came to me a while ago, is that I think most leaders are just sailing their ship around the harbor. They're playing at leadership. They call it leadership, but they're not really stretching. Maybe putting the sails up and down a couple of times, the decks look clean, the annual review comes around and they get their bonus but they're not really stretching and they're not creating that ability for the people who work for them to stretch themselves and grow. So I, the book is also about how do I get leaders and how do leaders get themselves to go out of the harbor, sail a ship and search for rougher seas to stretch themselves. And I've learned that I can do that. I'm not always good at learning about it and therefore I have to teach myself, but how can I pass that on to others to stretch themselves? Yeah. So what do you hope will be the big takeaway of somebody who reads the book cover to cover? 
I think the, the biggest one is actually it's based on the hero's journey. So I want people to have fun. I don't always wake up with a smile on my face, but I hope most days that I wake up with a smile on my face. You know, And after I've had my first coffee, there's definitely a, a drug-infused smile on my face. But it's this piece about the hero's journey is about growth stretching. It is about having fun and stretching yourselves in a way that sometimes fun for some people is really just pushing themselves, finding new ways they didn't realize they could do things in. And therefore, the piece for me is if people can start to see the hero's journey as an iterative process, a bit like your new script every day, that actually they can almost not forget yesterday, but they can start afresh and new. They can have new journeys. And that even when a journey has failed, there's a learning in it there, as long as they've got the systems and habits that are right, then they can grow. And that's that's what I want people to get, because that's what I suddenly realized is I've got one failed marriage in my life. Is that a big failure? Yes, it is for that person and for me at the time, but I've got to learn from that. I've got to work on how I approach the new part of my life in a new hero's journey. Leave the village again. Yeah. So I will circle in a, in a bit to um, the comments you made about various markers in your journey, but staying still with the book, um, yep. what are some of the core scaffoldings, the, the core practices that you are offering to enable people to A, truly embrace this idea of uh, learning, and second, the idea of um, having fun and being explorative and sailing into rougher seas. What are some concrete practices and, and habits that you're encouraging in the book to build? So the book can be split into two things. And one of those is what we call the enablers. So if you think about three Cs of leadership, we talk about confidence, conviction, connection. And the, the core principle of leadership is a leader needs followers and followers need a leader. That's the, the principle. But we won't follow somebody unless they demonstrate almost in equal measures, confidence, conviction, and connection. So we talk about practical ways to build confidence. So we do a lot of work around executive presence. That thing that I was always asked for from my leaders in the past, gravitas, you know, that the ability to dial up and dial down gravitas, to have levity and then having roots and seriousness when I speak. The second thing is about the prominence and how do I show, how do I show myself and how do I reduce my prominence? So we do a lot of work around executive presence, which is the confidence to speak with vocality and physicality in a strong way, but also with mental strength in there. And then the second C is about conviction. We work back to tie before we set leaders off on the journey, we want them to really go back into their value set and start to look at their own identity. There's a piece around purpose as well. So why do I do that? And so therefore, if I, if I can have conviction or at least test out some values, some of us don't know our values, but at least go out and test them and say, you know, I had honesty as one of my first values. And then I realized that if I lived honesty all the time, I'd be commenting on the plant behind you or I'd be commenting on your clothes, your hair, whether I liked you or not all the time, a bit like liar, liar, but Jim Carrey, I'd probably be causing myself some problems. So testing out to get to transparency, I didn't like that, but then testing out, okay, refreshingly direct is a way I can do this. So I can be direct. I can be refreshing. So there's a bit around conviction about living our values and how we live them. And then finally, on the three C's and the enablers, there's this piece about connection and this agility. So we use our actors to allow people to have conversations in different ways, to be able to dance with the music the other person brings. You know, there'd be 20, 30 different ways to handle a conversation. And we bring the actors in to allow people to demonstrate the confidence, demonstrate their conviction, but most importantly, the agility of having a conversation in different ways. I mean, if you take the world at the moment politically and everything else, wouldn't it be great if there was a place where people could go play and build connection through different types of conversations? 
We do it with our actors. We allow people to immerse themselves in a playground we call Forum Theatre to do that. Yeah. Yeah, you're painting there a scenario of a Davos event in a playground where you can play with world leaders and get yeah. them a little bit out of their roles. Ain't going to happen anytime soon, but... No. <laughs> Maybe for the next generation. <laughs> the conviction in the way you frame it and the reframe in the idea of honesty as reframed in refreshingly directive, mm-hmm. I think is what you said. Yeah. Speaks to me about a practice of building deeper layers of self-insight mm. such that you are able to continually refine values from constructs as nice to have, I wish mm. to be like that, to more a discovery on the inside such that you, the way you lead is an inside-out act of the true representation of the person you are becoming mm. as you emerge as a leader. Yeah. So I'm going to give you a simple one, a more deeper one that would take a while to explain. The simple one for me is if you take it into the CEO who every year puts themselves up for a vote to see whether they should be the CEO of the organization every year. Yeah, if I take a leadership contest like that, where they're open, they're transparent, secret ballot, take that simple language and then think, when was the last time that we open up a conversation with a group of people you've never met and said, so what do you think about it? What do you think? So we have an exercise that we work with people where I'll stand up at the front or our facilitators will stand up at the front. And the first question we ask to the group is, so you've met me for five, 10 minutes. We've done the introductions. Now, I'd like you in pairs to write down a list. On the left-hand side of the list, I'd like you to write down everything you like about me. And on the right-hand list, I would like you to write everything you don't like about me. And you've got free, free reign to go wherever you want in there. Now, the principle we're setting up there, firstly, We get them to write the list of what they like. Most people will go to the likes, and then we encourage them to have fun and play and just observe and pick up some of the things that they're feeling about me or the relationship, and they write down the things on the right. Now, we give them a practical exercise because once they've got that list, and we're encouraging them to laugh. If they're not laughing when they're doing this, they're not having doing it the right way. So if they're serious and they're analyzing, no, 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 come on, push it. So do you trust me? So we're prompting them to say, do you trust me? You know, if I was leading you, what do you think about me? What do my kids think about me at the moment? So you've met me, what do my kids? So we're prompting them to think about observation. At the time, they give a word back, like, so the first one comes up and says, well, you're confident. So what gives you confidence in me? And so we're asking them to give them traits, behaviors, characteristics of me that give you confidence. Now, that exercise we do, and it's the best way we do it, is also to role model the, the gift of giving, receiving feedback. So when we're receiving it, we're asking the question, so what gives you that? That's interesting. Never thought about that. And if there's developmental, which is arrogant, they'll say, okay, fascinating. What gives you arrogant? And then it's that ability to receive the feedback, ask for it. And then go, okay, I need to learn from that. I need to work from it. Now, once that's done, we flip it around and we say, okay, you've given me feedback now. You've made a first impression on me. I've got three things that I think of you. What are they? Now, there's a simple workout exercise where individuals in that room either smile, they look dumb, the eyes go blank, or they pale because they suddenly realize they have no clue what I think of them. So there's a... almost a simple exercise you can do for them where they can write down the things I think of them. Yep, that's what they say. And then we test them out. So I say, okay, so what are the three things you've written down that I think of you? And I will give them what I really think of them in the moment. So I'll say, yep or no. And so therefore we're stretching. You can see the refreshing and the direct is they've probably never had a conversation like this with anybody else. They've started to look at themselves in an inward way and a 
a reflective way. But actually, a lot of this is actually trying to see others looking in at you and seeing what they will see. And most of us are totally unconscious about how others see us or our body language or our tics or that our face looks like we're angry all the time. Yeah. So that's a simple exercise. So hopefully those two make sense. Yeah. 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 And you said you have actors on your team. What are the other capacities that you employ and that you deploy those actors in the intervention with team leaders? It's, I mean, it's fascinating. So if you think about Heathrow Airport, I'm sure you've flown through Heathrow Airport at some point in your life. So we were assessing Heathrow Airport customer service. So we were looking at new people in the customer service roles, and we put assessment centers together. So what we did was we created these case studies, and one of them was the head of Kenyan Airways. And they had to deal as a customer service person going through the assessment center. One of the characters they had to deal with was the head of Kenyan Airways. So we give them a room where they have to go to that meeting. There's an observer, one of us assessing them, and then they have an actor, and they walk in, and they have to meet the actor. And in this case, the great man, Ken Collard, who's one of my favorite people, who's a brilliant actor and has gone on to be very famous. But he was sat in that room, and he played the head of Kenyan Airways. Now, what they had to do within 10 to 15 minutes is diffuse a situation, work in a situation to get the head of Kenyan Airways to agree to new slots, to service levels. Now, when they came out of it, firstly, they were very clear about whether they'd been successful or not by the way the actor gave a proportionate reaction to what they had. But it was amazing because Ken Collard was offered a job by Heathrow Airport and Gatwick Airport. Because of the quality, they thought he was real. They thought this was an actor, but he was in that moment. Now, how often do we get the chance? Say you've got a tough client assignment to face. How often do we get somebody to play that client and practice those conversations in the moment? That's what we do with them. Yeah. Interesting. I did notice a couple of years ago, last time uh, on British Air and maybe a few times before, I think it's British Air, the, the message to passengers, this is pre-pandemic, obviously, mm. um, was always acted by some of the top uh, British actors. Yes, and actresses. <laughs> yes. So what was that crisis you mentioned earlier that happened when you were 30, where you mm. were delivered to an insight that you couldn't follow the script mm. crafted for you by your grandparents and by your father and so on? Mm. Okay. We're talking here about the idea of producing drafts every day and truly mm. engaging with the authentic property of learning. So to the degree that you can talk about that and the learning from that mm. you take out of an experience like that, it'll be of interest and value. So I'm very happy to talk about it. You know, I've done my work on that. And so there's a couple of things in my mind. I think one of them that I picked out of there is I was listening to others' voices and not my own. So something was wrong. You know, when I was a child and my, I don't know if you know Robert Burns, the poet, but my grandfather and father were trying to get me to recite Tamashanta, which is one of his famous poems. I just, one, I couldn't be bothered to learn it. Secondly, I didn't understand why I was doing it. And thirdly, I just couldn't recite it. And it was the look of disappointment in my grandfather's eyes, my father going, oh, I failed in there. When I look back at that, that was a voice, their voice saying, this is the way I should live my life. Whereas when I look back at my own life, I was very successful. I had two or three groups of friends who I was very close to. I had the ability to have conversations with people in a natural way. And I had the ability to walk into a room when, when I was seven years old and walked into the U.S., I was able to go off and play and meet people. And suddenly I discovered this playground of conversations that I could have. 
But for them, the learning and the knowledge was more important than, in some cases, the wisdom at that point. Mine was about the wisdom of people and finding my own niche and my own strength was core to me. So what I did was I followed their role of going to be try to be an accountant with Arthur Anderson. I then tried to follow the role of going into a sales role and being a sales representative, which again, I found soul destroying. So I was firstly doing a job I hated because voices had told me, and I, I was being a classic victim in there and not in control of my own world. But I also, because of my social side and because of the almost the energy it was being sapped from me by not enjoying my job, I countered that by I was partying, I was going off, I was going to see friends at the weekend, I was driving all over the country to go and socialize. So not only was I driven to achieve in my role, I was successful in the both roles I went into, Procter & Gamble particularly, I was top salesperson of a particular product and all of those. But I burnt myself out by doing the weekend and the social and job in a pub to do all of that. So I got to the point where my energy ran out and I had not balanced my energy. And, and I had that moment where I went back to see my local doctor in Newcastle. I was in tears for two weeks. And he gave me, and this is where I started to pick up the role of the mentor in my life as well. This doctor closed the door. He canceled his appointments. He just sat there and he said, Colin, you have an infinite, you know, you have a finite amount of energy in any circumstances. And what you've got to do is you've got to work out how you're going to spend it, how you're going to fuel it, yeah, and how you can sustain it in what you do in your life. And that was a real turning point for me. I then started to look and say, so what do I want to be passionate about? I went off and did an MBA. And therefore, I went and played for a year doing an MBA. I worked hard, but I played and I found friends in there who were in top jobs in organizations. And I suddenly became myself. And it was a revelation. That's one of the things I coach people on is if we can find our true self, we don't waste energy being trying to be somebody else. Yeah. So that script every day became a script that I could play off. I could go explore. And I wasn't wasting energy on putting a suit or a tie on to be somebody else. I was me. So that was what I learned from that. And then I've spent the rest of my life still being more wrong, still finding ways that I liked, didn't like it. But I found that by being myself, I built stronger networks of collaboration. People seem to engage better with me. I felt better. I felt happier. And therefore, I've used those networks to go on my journey, which has had its ups and downs again, but has been successful. Yeah. So one of the morals of the story is that as parents, as grandparents, as mentors, as leaders, mm. one of the most negative or unproductive, sometimes even pathological impact we can create is distancing people from themselves, causing people to want to be somebody else other than who they are. Mm. And yep. there is nothing to weaken you and separate you from your strength and your source of bliss other than to forever push you in a direction where you need to be somebody other than who you are. I often say that the, the law of the tree is that when you go into the forest, you see one tree growing and another tree growing next to it, and you see the full canopy of the forest, and you never see one tree saying, oh, I am envious of that other tree. Instead of growing out of my own roots, I'm going to try and jump and grow from that tree's roots and going to try to compete and take its position in the forest canopy. You don't see that. You see the mm -hmm. trees, some in a more optimal, some in less optimal position, growing out of their own roots. Mm -hmm. 
We have developed a culture that's very much based on external confirmation and driven by fear of missing out where people are staring at each other on the extraordinary life they presumably live on Facebook, mm. forever thinking they need to be somebody other than who they are. And yeah. so many of the pathological behaviors and addictive behaviors, that they come out of that one first problem, mm. which is refusing to embrace and grow out of your own roots. That's the moral I harvest from your story. Yeah, I love the, the mental strength. I'm going through some work myself at the moment, looking at mental strength. And, and what's interesting is, you know, and sad my father passed away about two, three months ago, but it's been a cathartic experience for me because he was a brilliant doctor, but I never saw that man that was in the hospital with the patients. But actually listening to the stories of the people who were his students and his colleagues, I was going through and I did his eulogy at the service and I suddenly realized the person I was talking about was me, but I didn't see me, i.e. him at the hospital. I just saw the tired, the man who'd saved babies' lives and the man who didn't have enough energy to be what I needed at that time. And therefore, I don't hold it against him. I don't, never have, but I, I look back and I go, so how am I bringing up my own daughters that I can learn from this energy, this place that's been brilliant? And, you know, I talked to my eldest daughter about this and mentioned a couple of times and I keep checking in, I'm, you know, how am I with you? How is my relationship with you? And it, it's a tough one to go for, but it's, I think a leader, particularly nowadays with resilience even being more key, has to have humility and vulnerability in there to be able to start to share because there's so many people with vulnerabilities in the world that we live in that they've got to have the ability to share that and allow others to share on top of it. That's my belief. Yeah. So you have gone from that point of realization in your 30s through to being able to offer that eulogy. You have gone through some kind of a journey from resentment I imagine, to forgiveness mm. and to cherishing uh, the best of him as an essence that you are able to carry in yourself. Yeah, and I think if we all have people in our lives who make a big impact, and the, and the person I write about in the book, Randy Taylor, who was the person I went and lived with in San Francisco, and he had, everybody has their unique capabilities, their unique behaviors, their unique bit that they can offer. And Randy Taylor had this ability to be curious and to make people having conversations with them feel the most important person in the world. So I look at all my mentors, and I think, you know, this is where I come to the mental piece. There are so many mentors in my life, and what my aim is, and one of the projects I've got on next year, is to craft and develop mentors to be there for, to increase equity, you know, in the socially deprived areas of this world, to allow people to have equal chance, not just for the sake of it, but I just think there's so much potential in these people who have lived lives that nobody else has lived to get creativity, innovation, ideas, to bring a different music and dance to what we do. And therefore, the mentor side, I'm starting to pick up and using my own journey to help others to learn and share. Yeah. And I imagine the more you're able to integrate yourself into your work, the greater the freedom and liberation and the charisma and impact to others, because in, by way of um, integrating yourself, you invite them into their own integration. Yeah. I, I always use the analogy in a simple way of the computer. We probably own, I have probably only used 10% of my computer's capabilities or my phone's capabilities. It's the same in my journey. I, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm only 10, 15% in what I have the capability to understand about myself and work with. And therefore, you know, it, it's a great journey to be on. And, you know, I'm 56 this year coming up very shortly next week. 
but I almost feel like I want to start again because I want to have another 56 years of exploring. So it's helping me love my life. Yeah. Well, you might have another 50 or 60 years without needing to start again. And the thing is, the deal here in this planetary journey is we never really get to a, a second rerun. This is not a dress rehearsal. It's the real deals. It is. So given everything we are describing, mm. I mean, what is the business side of this? Why must we create at work a place where leaders and their teams are free to make mistakes and get things wrong? Why is it right for business that we enable and create ecologies where people can fail? What's the business? Not that you must have a rationale in a conversation with me, but in the way of explaining that to a business leader who is focusing on the top line and the bottom line, why? So I think it depends what your measurement systems are. And I think this is where if you take big corporates, my mission is to shift the way they they measure themselves. If you've got a startup, a lot of startups are measured on leading indicators. So is my product, put it out ugly to the market. Do I get measurement? Do I get feedback on it and work that? So they're almost playing that game where they're starting to be more wrong all the time, but they're learning fast. The principle is learn fast. So failure without reflection and learning is not and not towards a purpose. You've got to go towards a purpose. So I think startups, that's key. But the other bit for me is that most businesses see have these fiefdoms of operation sales. When you think about most of life, it's a customer only sees in a hotel the service and they see the endpoint of the service. They don't see the systems and operations and everything that's gone behind it. And therefore, what we're talking about is how do we create projects or experiences or systems that allow, whether it's customer service to be exceptional, for the product to be exceptional. But it's also about the fact that if we don't disrupt, so I work with luxury hotels, number of them, they are in such a fierce competitive market that if they aren't thinking about the newest things and fresh ideas, and if their service isn't spot on any day, they can lose a $10,000 a night suite overnight. That one moment, that little bit of a mistake can be an interesting one in terms of losing a customer. But the other way around is, unless they're stretching themselves, then how are they going to create craft and imagination and experience where somebody's going to say, I'm going to pay $10,000 a night. So if I have you know, an example of when we stayed at Claridge's and my daughters were young and I was mystery shopping, but we'd gone and we'd bought Melman and Gloria that characters from Madagascar, if you know the uh, cartoon Madagascar, but the two characters. So they've got stuffed toys, stuffies, I think they're called the US, but they got the stuffies and they brought them in. And then we'd gone to check in this hotel and we left our suitcases and we left Melman and Gloria there. And we went off and had dinner and we went to a show. We came back in later on and we were checked into our suite. Now they didn't know who we were, but we were checked in. As we were checking into the suite, one of the lady who was showing us up to the room as she approached the door, she she bent to my daughters and went, who were very young at the time, went, shh. And so we were quiet. We were creeping along. She opened the door. And as we opened the door, the room was in darkness. And she went, shh, again. We went through to the other room. And we said, shh, open the door. And the room had been turned down for the night. But what they'd done is they'd created a small bed for Melman and Gloria at the bottom and put them to bed. So they'd create this experience where now my daughters think going to hotels means that every experience, well, the cuddly toys will be put to bed, that the experience will be like a princess in there. Now, that is about trying to do something different. That's about stretching. 
and it's about learning. So they could have done that two or three times and it not work, but how would they perfect that art? So every day in our businesses, and this is how we live our life in Potential Squared, we're thinking somebody's going to disrupt us at some point. So how do we make our experience exceptional? And unless we're stretching ourselves, we won't be. And therefore, to stretch ourselves means to fail. And we fail with our clients quite a few times, but we need to set that partnership up with them. So that's what I'm saying to leaders. Whatever business you're in, you're just about to be disrupted, whether it's your job is going to be taken by somebody who's below you, who's wanted to get in, or it's by somebody coming in and competing with you. How do you keep your ideas fresh? It is about that spirit of being more wrong, learning fast, growing, keeping your ideas fresh. And that's the simple value proposition of be more wrong. Yeah. What else do you do with your team to make sure that you walk the talk and practice what you preach? We try different things all the time. So we tried Pulse. I don't know if you've ever heard of Churchill's prayers, but Churchill during the war used to do a prayers piece where he used to gather everybody together in the morning and everybody had to say what they did yesterday, what they're doing today, what they're doing tomorrow. So we've played around with communication and we found that 9.15 in the morning, a Pulse where everybody talks and everybody shares has been one thing. So we try new, what we would call practices you know, in there. And once they're embedded, which the pulse is embedded now, it becomes a habit. And then it becomes part of the system. We've been playing around with setting objectives. So at the moment, we I hate objectives because objectives, as James Clear says in Atomic Habits, we don't rise to the level of our objectives. We fall to the level of our systems. So we don't call them objectives anymore. We have strategic projects. And strategic projects have leading indicators against them. So we're trying to create a different rhythm in our practices that become habitual, that create new systems of how we operate. So we've been playing with that. And our latest one is leadership. So we've promoted two sort of very junior young people into senior roles in our business because we were struggling to recruit at the senior level. Failure. So therefore, we've taken a risk. And these two people are amazing. Charlotte and Stephen, shout out to them today because Stephen has just I met him when he delivered a rental car to me and I met him and I recruited him off the back end of that. And he's had a journey, he's grown, but the feedback we're getting about his development and journey is massive. So just taking a risk. So that's what we're learning with our team. They know there's opportunities, they know their stretch, but we're practicing what we preach by having a go. And if we don't get it right, there's no beat up. It's a mutual conversation to say, so where are we going next? We fail with that. Let's Think about why, let's learn and quickly move on to the next piece. So those are just some small examples we're doing, yeah. What's another situation where you were compelled as a leader, as a business owner to exercise courage? I think a couple of them. One is my original business partner who I started in 2001 with. We had a meeting in 2007 and I sat in a kitchen in South London with a facilitator and I realized that we weren't living and practicing what we preached. And therefore, that was a moment where we were very successful. Hunter Roberts, as it was, was very successful, could have lived a lifestyle business and been very happy and content. But I didn't want to live in a business where we weren't practicing what we preached and weren't exploring. So that was one time where I called it, said, we're going to demerge. Both of us have gone off. Hunter Roberts still exists, been very successful in our own rights. The second thing for me is that and this is a weird one because this comes back to my imposter syndrome I hold. I spent most of my life thinking I need a business partner you know, because I'm not worthy. I can't run a business by myself. And it's a weird concept. And eventually I found 
in somebody else. I found in my COO, Sharon Hardcastle, a point where I describe her as my work wife and she's my work husband. I'm her work husband, but we found a way of operating. Then she isn't my business partner. She's my equal in the business and how we run it. And we found a different route, but that's taken a number of cases where I've had how many, four business partners in my time who have come and gone. And those are courageous decisions to say no and say, I'm going to part ways on those. Those are the biggest ones for me. Yeah. Well, that sounds to me like a journey into discovering yourself and discovering yeah. your own strength and discovering the all sorts of constructs in your map of meaning, such mm. as I need a partner and others are imported, mm. but not authentically arising in terms of your needs or, or formation or whatever purpose you're here to serve. And then the discovery of a new operating system where there is a different kind of a collaboration. It's mm. not partnership. It's something else. I don't know what the word, but it sounds like you are completing in a way to each other the needs. You're playing to each other's strengths and you're both able to serve the need and the purpose of the organization in a way that's authentic and equitable. Mm. And therefore it produces around you a sense a field of well-being and support and encouragement to the larger team. Yeah. And I think that's where people see it. And they know that we speak with the same voice, which is very, very useful. But it's taken work. Yeah. We have what we call windowsill moments where there's been conflict. But I, you know, that's my other analogy in here is that functional families are the ones who can have the tough conversations and get through them. Yeah. And so therefore I'm a big believer that's how we should live. And that's how we teach our clients to do it. So if we're not doing it internally, then yeah, we're not living what we preach. Yeah. How do you define a tough conversation? It's interesting. It's, um, it's in some ways where you hold a, a very strong point of view. Yeah. And you have to, you have to hold yourself to account as Susan Scott would say in fierce conversations to only have 50% of the truth and seek the other 50% of the truth from the others. So a tough conversation for me is when, when the butterflies are flying, yeah, and you can feel the knot turning in your stomach. Now, some of those turn into nothing. Their fear about the conversation, and therefore the tough conversation suddenly becomes, if you handle it in the right way, it suddenly becomes nothing. And it's, oh, yeah, no, I agree. We should be off. But it's the ones where they're worth more than six out of 10 is some of the metrics I use. My old colleague used to give me that. If it's worth more than six out of 10, then have the conversation. But they're normally attached to things that are values-led for me. There are things that either they're crossing the boundaries of something that I won't accept or tolerate in my own value set, or they're doing something that I don't believe is the right way for the business, and I have a point of view in them. What I've learned, though, over time is that the tough conversations is being accountable for your emotional weight, because a lot of the tough conversations a lot of people have are things that they just want to get them off their chest. Once they've got them off, They've dumped that on somebody else and they've left them with, you know, a real, a real difficult problem to solve in their own mind. So I'm a believer that refreshingly direct means that you leave both refreshed, but you leave very, very clear about both sides of the opinion. Doesn't mean you agree, doesn't mean you get resolution, but at least you've got a different knowledge base and a wisdom base from that. Yeah. Right. And you also clearly assert that uh, dumping, venting, and vomiting <laughs> are not other names for holding critical conversations with somebody important. No. Yeah. 
I think there's some there's a place for what we call bucket dumping, Aviv, which is you know in our in team meetings occasionally it's just it's okay for people to have ten minutes at the beginning where they just say everything that's wrong with their life. You know, my water system's gone, it's hot, whatever else, and just allowing people to just get that off their chest. We are all human. We're perfectly imperfect in our our own rights, you know, and therefore just to to allow ourselves to vent, but not expecting anybody to do anything with it. It's just, it's allowing it. And I think that's that's where the psychological safety comes in that Amy Edmondson talks about. But it also comes into that point where we need to learn what the other person wants from us. And, uh, you know, my team can share, they can vent, they might have a hangover, they might have be having a bad day, they might be doing whatever it is, and they can still share that they're in there. Now, if they continue to share and it becomes irritating, then there's another conversation to be had. But it's allowing people the space to to vent is a powerful place. Yeah. Well, we're approaching my three closing questions. Right. With all that uh, you know today, what mm. advice would you give your 25-year-old self? Oh. My 25-year-old self, I would say, is go play for a while. Go explore. So one thing I would say is I at my at that age, I had the chance to go off and, and travel. I did a bit of travel in the US, but I could have traveled further. I would advise somebody to go off and, and play in their early years, but play purposefully, go explore, find themselves, go work, go experience different cultures. So that's one thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that, and I hope this changes, I would listen very carefully and with a strong filter to what schools and educators say to us. I would I would encourage us to, to seek our own voices in there and listen to our own voices in there. So I think those are two. Did you ask me for three? I'm just remembering. No, yeah. no. I'm coming to something else that I'm going to ask for, for two. So uh, you're psychic. Yeah. But you said there the advice to your 25-year-old self is, is play purposefully yeah. and, listen, and listen to yourself. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I would say. If you were to lose all that you know and keep only two ideas or two capabilities or two practices, mm. what would you keep? So this has changed. I would keep my headspace. I would keep my meditation. I find one practice that I do every day now is headspace. That keeps me grounded. So that's one that I would definitely have. And I think the, the other one is very powerful for me at the moment. I would have life balance. So if I go back to my father and his amazing career that I never knew and the person I never knew, I would try and get people to think about life balance rather than work-life balance. And that's what I would keep to understand what life balance and the impact you have on those around you and how you can share your stories. Yeah. And the idea of a life balance is, is seeing that all the different roles and all the different capacities that you operate in, they're all part of one unified, integrated life. Exactly. And you've got to look at it holistically. Yeah, exactly right. You said it a lot better than I did. <laughs> Colin, thank you. This uh, has been a rich exploration today as we bring this to lending. What uh, parting wisdom do you wish to offer to people listening to uh, create new futures? So I would encourage people to, to think about this concept of playgrounds and how they can get up every day and turn a practice and a habit to a habit, to a system that allows them to have fun in their lives. And whatever fun is to them, I would encourage us to think about maybe not the school playground, 
but other forms of playground where they can stretch and have a soft landing and help others to create those in their lives as well. That'd be what I'd be asking. Beautiful. So a playground is defined as a place that will bring in us the opportunities to stretch and land softly and safely and encourage the same in others. Any other qualifiers for what shapes a playground? I think that's where it goes back to the individual. I think some people will be jumping out of an airplane. Some people will be going back to school. Some people will be working 11 hours a day and in a job that they love. Whatever it is, just find, find your purpose and you'll normally find that it comes with a playground if it's there. Yeah. Beautiful. Find your purpose and discover the playground that uh, surrounds that purpose. Thank you exactly. so very much. Pleasure, Aviv. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you for listening. Aviv always encourages his clients to identify the one or two ideas they can move forward into action immediately. What will you capture and apply today? You can always begin with a small action and then build momentum over time. When you move forward from an idea to action, you get immediate ROI, return on the time you invested, and return of learning. And then the learning cycle builds the success propulsion. One more thing. You can reach Aviv directly by phone and email to discover how he can help you create a new future for your business and organization. Creating your new future can begin today.